Jesus, we thank, I thank you for your word. Uh, you said, Jesus, quoting from uh, Deuteronomy, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we just um, recognize that just like we feed the physical man, the spiritual man needs to be fed too. And this is our food, your word. And so, God, we pray that, uh, that you just open up the appetite, Lord, that we would uh, taste and see this morning how good you are how good your word is, and we ask your blessing upon it. Lord, may your spirit anoint it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So we have come to the last, uh, the last chapter of this series through uh, First and Second uh, Timothy. Um, after Easter, uh, we're, I'm going to start a series in Exodus. I'm really looking forward to teaching through the book of Exodus, but we're going to be going to the book of Exodus. But this morning, we're going to be wrapping up this series where we've been uh, really since early January. And... Uh, I was away last weekend. We had a great, great weekend away. We went down to Seattle and we took in um, a Christian comedian by the name of Tim Hawkins. There was 4,000 people there. We took our kids, had a great time. And then we went to uh, Mars Hill uh, downtown campus on Sunday and really enjoyed it. But we, we missed you guys. And so just uh, being two weeks out from where we were in chapter three, I thought uh, we should touch on the last couple verses of chapter three as we launch into chapter four. Uh, to help us get a hold of the context and what's going on here. Now, now just recall this as we begin to dive into this, that uh, Paul is at the end of his life. We got to remember that he's in a Roman uh, prison. This for him is the conclusion of, you know, more than 30 years of ministry and serving Jesus and preaching Jesus and doing missionary work and planting churches and investing in leaders. And this is, you know, his swan song. This is the passing on of the, cho- the torch, like the great marathon runner that he was. He is handing the baton to his young uh, protege. And, um, and so what he says here in 2 Timothy 4 is very important. It's his, it's his last words. It's the last thing that he says as he passes on uh, this ministry in a sense. And so at the end of chapter 3, we saw that, that Paul talked about the nature of God's word. And then at the start of chapter 4, where he's going to go is this. is He's going to talk about Timothy's responsibility to that word. And so let's read... Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What does Paul say? He says this, look, the comprehensive whole of God's word from Genesis uh, to Revelation is inspired of God. It is a God-breathed book. And I mean, if you, you know the word of God at all, or you begin to spend some time in the Bible, you, you know that this is not really just one book. It's an Old Testament with 39 books. It's a New Testament that has 27 books. There's over 40 different authors. The books were written over 1,500 years. You got, you got different authors that were king, a king poet like David, a king philosopher like Solomon. You get uh, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, a statesman like Daniel, a, a farmer like Amos, a fisherman like John and Peter. You get someone who you probably call a scholar, the Apostle Paul. A priest like Ezra and, and Ezekiel. 
And with all this different variety of authors and being spread over hundreds of years, you you'd expect that this book might be sort of this mixed bag of ideas. But we know as we study the word of God that there is one thread of redemption that goes through it, one single theme of God's plan for redemption revealed and unfolded in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, we could talk about many doctrines of the Bible, you know, theology, the study of God, but really when you boil the Bible down, right down, it preaches one doctrine, and that's this, Jesus Christ. Jesus. One name, Jesus. And so as, as followers of Jesus and knowing that from Genesis to Revelation, the entire book is breathed out by God, uh, cover to cover, divinely inspired, inerrant, we say, without error. The question is, what then is our relationship to this book that God has given us, this divinely inspired uh, word that we've been given? And so, you know, uh, that's a good question for us. It's also a good question for Timothy as a pastor. And that's the question Paul is going to begin to address here. Here's the nature of the word. It comes from God. Now, what's our relationship to the word? You ever uh, got yourself in one of those conversations when someone says to you, you know, the Bible, I, you just can't trust it. It's full of errors. There, there's mistakes, you know, and manuscripts and this and that and you might hear all sorts of different things and they go on to make different claims about the problems with the Bible. Have you, have you ever had that or ever been in a conversation like that? The frustrating thing about a conversation like that is that, the, that when someone speaks as an authority like that, they, they put the burden of proof on you. It's like they're saying, you know, I've researched this. I know this. I've studied these things and you can't trust the word of God. And so now you're left to scramble and come and, you know, maybe go talk to the pastor or whatever you're going to do to find information to defend the word of God. And I heard a great strategy in those situations, which I think is, is the way to go and which I would encourage you to do. And it's this. Here's the game plan. Ready? When you find yourself in that kind of situation, you just pass the Bible to someone and say, could you show me those errors that you're talking about? You put the word of God into their hands and you ask them to point out the errors that they are so boldly proclaiming are there. Because, you know, I've, I've read the word of God for a long time, like many of you have now, and, and I have not found any errors. Instead, I've found that the more I understand the word of God, the more I'm amazed how God has put this message together to reveal Jesus Christ to us. Divinely inspired, breathed out by God. And so what is... Timothy's relationship to it. Ultimately, what is our relationship to the word of God? And so we read in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, he says this, I charge you. So let's just stop right there for a second. Whoa. I charge you. So hold on. This is serious. What Paul is about to say here matters, okay? The handling of this book matters. There's a duty there, there is a responsibility. There is a trust that is being handed over to Timothy and that you and I also carry. And so if this is the breathed out word of God, then how you and I and how the church handles this matters. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
Some different things he says as he charges Timothy with this task to preach the word, to be a proclaimer, to be a herald of God's truth. And he points to some things about the nature of God as he puts this mandate on Timothy. He says this, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. You know, the psalmist said this, where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall find me, your right hand shall hold me. The question is this, where can we go from the presence of God? And the answer is, nowhere. God is spirit. And there is nowhere I can escape his presence. You can't escape his presence. And so because the reality of God's presence is here with us, there's a responsibility in the handling of his word. Our our relationship to the word is to be tied to the fact that God is always present. He also says our relationship to the word is tied to the fact that Jesus will judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. What that means is that, that when We come to the word of God. Eternity actually comes into view. Life and death comes into view as we come to the word of God. He also says our relationship to the word of God is tied to both Jesus appearing and his kingdom. You know, think about this. I'll never understand the nature of Christ's coming without the word of God. You know, I'll never understand that He first came as a humble king on a donkey to make peace for men with God. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name. Riding into Jerusalem to lay down his life. The humble king who laid down his life so that we might experience salvation. But not only will I not experience and understand that coming, I'll also not understand his second coming. Because the Bible says once he came on a donkey, And he'll come a second time on a horse as a conquering king. As a king to rule. A a king whose robes will be dipped in blood. Without the word of God, I'll, I'll never understand that the kingdom of God has both a physical and a spiritual reality to it. That at that first coming, Jesus came to establish the spiritual reality of his kingdom in the hearts of men. He came that first time to win our hearts for God. To bring us into relationship with God. But at his his second coming, that, that kingdom will physically manifest on the earth. And he will rule from a throne in Jerusalem, the Bible says. And and there will be a physical reality and reigning of his kingdom on this earth. It won't just be spiritual anymore. See, what what Paul is saying here is, is he as he charges Timothy is that without the word of God, I cannot understand the presence of God. Without the word of God, I cannot comprehend eternity properly. Without the word of God, I cannot understand King Jesus as judge, judge over sin. I I cannot understand uh, eternity. I, I, I can't understand his appearing or even the nature of the kingdom of God without the word of God. See God's presence and eternity, and judgment of sin, and the appearing of Jesus, and the kingdom of God, all of those things come into focus as I look at life through the lens of God's word. 
Then I begin to interpret this world and understand how God is working and what he's doing. You might wonder, you mean, I, can I really use the word of God to interpret all of life and to, to come to understand these things? And the answer is yes. As the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. For what? That the man of God may be competent or perfect, it says in other versions, equipped for every good work. And so I charge you, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Be a herald. Openly proclaim the word of God. You know, if, if, if preaching is to be a, a, a herald, a, a proclaimer, an official messenger, and to bring the news of God and of his kingdom, you know, the, the job of a, a herald is not negotiations. The job of a herald is not salesmanship. You know, the, the, the job of a herald is not to strike bargains or to soft sell. The herald is sent with a message to proclaim the master's voice in loud, clear proclamation. Preach the word. Timothy was called to be, you know, a herald of God's word with the, with the authority of heaven behind him. You know, it's the word of God that calls the lost to Jesus Christ as the spirit of God works. It's the word of God that calls not only the lost to Jesus, but calls Christians to Jesus so that we don't slide into religion and pharisaical living. I was thinking about it, you know, the trend in, in many churches uh, by practice, maybe not by spoken confession, but by practice is to replace the word of God with something that might be more programmatic or culturally relevant. I, I, I was recalling, and I, I don't think I've told this story for a long time, but when I was first involved in pastoral ministry and serving as a youth pastor, um, I was serving at a church that was built on what, what is called the seeker-sensitive model. And, and what that meant was that there was special, you know, intentional, uh, programmatic focus in the work that we did towards reaching out to the community and reaching out to those who didn't know Jesus. And, and part of that focus meant this. This is what we did. We dumbed down the teaching and the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the word of God. We just made the Bible a little bit less of a focus in our church. You know, there wasn't a lot. Not that we didn't believe that it was in error and all that stuff. We just said, you know, that might be a little offensive, so we'll, we'll dumb that down a little. I was thinking, you know, around the first time that, the first Christmas that we were there at that church, I got for Christmas this beautiful study Bible. And uh, it was one I had wanted for a long, genuine leather, just, just a beauty, man. It had my name on there. You know, you got one of those? This is a great Bible. And, uh, you know, it was not only my daily reader, but it was the Bible that I took to church with me. And one Sunday, that Bible disappeared. I thought, man, what the heck happened to that? I don't know what happened to it. Did someone take it? Did I leave it on the roof of the car and drive away? I don't know what happened to that Bible. For weeks, in fact, I searched high and low for that Bible because it was something that I treasured. And I was ticked, man. I thought maybe somebody stole my Bible. And, uh, you know, that's okay. If you have a stolen Bible, there's some... <laughs> 
Ivan. Ivan's not here this morning. I'm going to tell you a story about Ivan. Ivan carries a Bible to church that he stole from a chaplain <laughs> before he was saved. Now, where that chaplain was ministering to him, I'll let, you, I'll let him tell that story. Where he was, you can ask him. But uh, yeah, he packs one. But anyways, you know, I thought, man, maybe somebody's... I'm going to check and make sure my name's not in Ivan's Bible. Uh, I thought maybe someone stole it. And so, you know, I was ticked, searched high and low. And so I came to a conclusion. I thought this, you know what? I read my Bible at home. We don't really use it on Sunday. I'm not bringing my Bible to church anymore because I don't want to lose another one. Because the reality was, as a church, that's how much we were using the word of God. That me, a pastor on staff, did not bring a Bible with me to church. And that's what can happen. Not, not, not intentional, but, but little decision upon little decision. Here, you know, motivated to reach out to the lost, but in doing so, I believe we made a serious, serious error in our church. You know, I always remember growing up playing hockey when we'd do our drills and run through the paces and skate back into the corner and line up for the next repetition or whatever the next drill was that the coach was going to run us through. You know, us boys, especially as we got older, you know what we'd do? You'd skate into the line and you'd take your stick and the first thing you'd do is you'd whack the guy in front of you to come in the line. You'd whack his, the shaft of his stick, actually, to see if you could knock it out of his hand. The idea being that if you, if you don't hang on to that hockey stick, I'll take it out of your hand. And so I'm going to test you when you don't know that the wax coming. It'll come. And you know, the Bible is kind of like that. You loosen your grip on it, and Satan will come along and he'll try to knock it right out of your hand. And you know what Jesus said? He said this to those who believed in him. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, Jesus said this to the Jews who really believed in him. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples and then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, even Jesus taught that the way we hold to his teaching matters. The way we grasp this book matters. I'll tell you, I, can I confess something this morning? I, I uh, have had, had a habit of loving to memorize scripture. You know, if you've done any of our discipleship stuff with us, um, you know that we put a focus on memorizing scripture. And just haven't been doing it over the last little while. And uh, so my, my review hasn't been happening. Like honestly, for over a year, it's really been since I've taken a good run through a lot of the scripture stuff that I've memorized. And John 8, 31 and 32 is one of the verses that I memorized. It says to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching. And you know, as I was thinking about that verse this week, I thought, I can't remember where the reference is. I, I have that verse memorized and I don't know where it is. In the, it's, I've let it slip. <laughs> Here I'm going to talk about hanging on and I, I can't find the verse that I need. And it was just the spirit of God just reminding me, don't loosen the grip. Hang on. Keep it sharp. Preach the word. Paul says to Timothy, 
in season and out of season. That just simply means you be ready, Timothy, all times, man. Phone rings, run into that person, whatever happens, you be ready to go. You be ready to share Jesus at any moment. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Three things there. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, in the last chapter, two weeks ago, Paul, when, when we were going through that, Paul talked about uh, the characteristics of men in the last days. And Paul's about to go there again in this discussion. What it will be like on the earth in the last days. And the point is this, for Timothy to counteract the characteristics of the decaying age around you that is turning away from God, you need the word of God. Timothy is to be motivated in this, you know, by those very first things that we talked about, by the presence of God and remembering that God is a judge and that he has a kingdom and that he's coming again and all of these things. But also there's this sense there that, that the whole universe is actually watching. You know, in Hebrews, it tells us that the angels are like an audience cheering us on and watching to see the work of grace in our lives. Our faithfulness to God and to his word is under God's observation all the time. God is watching. Christ is watching. We're living in his presence. But there's another reason why it matters that we're faithful. Look at verse 3. He says this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. That word sound can also be healthy. Healthy teaching. People will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You're commenting on these verses, uh, William Hendrickson said this In every period of history, There will be a season during which men refuse to listen to sound doctrine. And as history continues onward toward the great consummation, the situation will grow worse. Men will not tolerate the truth. Thinking about thinking, man, you know, what's, what's, what's one of those issues in our culture where truth is not tolerated from the people of God? You know, what is it? Well, you know, there's one that, that comes to mind for me that's a touchy one. I don't, I don't touch on it very often, but this morning I'm going to. The discussion on homosexuality. You know, we know what the world is saying. We know what the world is preaching. We know what culture is preaching. And the issue that the church is always wrestling for that in, in this is, is this. You know, you know how do we you know, lovingly respond with the word of God to a culture that is rejecting the church, to a culture that is rejecting what we believe the word of God says about this issue. And the result is there's confusion. There's confusion among uh, the people of God. You know, there are professing Christians who say, you know, the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is a sin. There's others, other professing Christians who would claim that, you know, and I read this recently in a blog, blog would uh, claim that if Paul was to rewrite the book of Galatians in our culture and in our day, he would say this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. There is neither heterosexual or homosexual, for you are all one in Christ. Someone passed on to me this week, and, and, and I thought it was, uh, this Christian's on two sides of this same argument. And this week I read a great blog from Kevin DeYoung on the issue, and, and he, he said this. He said, homosexual behavior is repeatedly and clearly forbidden in Scripture. The evidence is so overwhelming that he quoted someone by the na- name of Luke Timothy Johnson. Now, Luke Timothy Johnson is a New Testament scholar. But here's the thing about Luke Timothy Johnson. He falls on the other side of the fence. He says, we should legitimize this within the church. It's okay. So here's what he says. I want you to listen to this. I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare the same-sex unions can be holy and good. What exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others who have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way which God has created us. What he is saying as this, as a New Testament scholar, I let go of this and I embrace experience. And that determines God's design. Kevin DeYoung went on to say this. He said, at the root, support for homosexual behavior is not simply a different interpretation of scripture. It is a rejection of scripture itself. Uh, Most importantly, he says, commending homosexuality involves the core of the gospel because it urges us to celebrate behavior which the Bible calls us to repent from. Listen to the words of Paul. For the time will come when people will not endure a sound teaching. I'm not picking on an issue. We could pick any issue. It's always, will I accept and hold to the authority of God's word or will I embrace the reality of my sin and pursuing that? Paul said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is idolatry. Get this picture in your mind. Here's idolatry. I take a piece of wood, take a piece of stone, whatever it is, and with my own hands, I fashion that wood and that piece of stone into an idol. And then I bow down And I worship the idol that I made with my own hands. There's a problem in that. The problem is this. That ultimately, I made the idol in the shape of my own passions. I made the idol after myself and after my design and after my passions. And so if I'm all about money, what do you think the idol looks like? I'm all about power, what shape does the idol take? If I'm all about sexual encounter, then I'll fashion that idol to meet 
my desires. You know, whatever your thing is. And when times come that people will not endure sound teaching and there is a rejection of the word of God, Paul says this, they will gather around themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You see what's happening? They're fashioning an idol in the image of their desires and putting around them the things that allow them to pursue that idol. It's a downgrade. And when that spiritual downgrade begins to happen, Paul says they'll move from truth to myth. Anybody gone to see Noah lately? Anybody gone to see that one yet? I really wanted to. I was so excited that it was coming out, man. You know, for months I thought, this is awesome, man. This could be like a good evangelistic thing. You know, maybe we, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. And then, you know, yesterday my, my cousin posted on uh, Facebook. He said, man, going to that movie was like banging my head against the wall for two hours. As someone who loves Jesus and reads the Bible and knows the story of Noah, that was banging my head against the wall for two hours. You know, it's interesting that on the big screen, you know, there may be a title and a loose Bible association with that movie called Noah, but it's teaching and what it tells of the story of Noah is, is based in uh, Gnostic Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism teachings that take the story of Noah and twist it. The Bible says Noah was a righteous man. A righteous. That means he was right before God. That movie presents a man who's a homicidal maniac. The closer he gets to God, the more crazy he gets. And some prefer myth to truth. Kind of like that movie. It's a little classic story. You know, read the book. It's better than the movie. And Paul says there's, a, there's something about these teachers that want to move from, or people that desire to move from truth and myth. They want their ears tickled. You know, I, I'm just beyond the age where I, I don't want to be tickled. I mean, literally tickled. Come tickle me, and you might be missing some teeth, okay? No, seriously. I mean, who likes to be tickled? As adults, we don't want to be really tickled, right? I mean, we'll tick, I'll tickle my kids, and that's fun. I think it's fun. It's fun for me. <laughs> Man, they want their ears tickled. And when they, as they have their ears tickled, they move from truth into myth. And so Timothy, in the sight of God, in, in the presence of Jesus, who's going to judge the living and he's going to judge the dead and, and he's going to appear again and his kingdom is coming and, and he is watching. And you preach the word. You preach healthy, sound doctrine. You preach it when it's favorable. And you preach it when the culture tells you it's unfavorable. Preach the word. See, as Christians, we really have, God hasn't given us an, an, an alternate plan. There, there is no alternate plan plan for carrying out God's work rather than declaring the gospel. The explanation Paul gave for his insistence here was this, knowing that some people would refuse. That some people would be indifferent. 
And obviously, as we read this, you know, indifference um, from those who are hearing the word of God it isn't the reason why we would, you know, turn off the tap of God's word. Or we would stop proclaiming the gospel. So as Christians, you know, we need to be committed to declaring God's word and God's message to even to indifferent audiences who don't want to hear it. And I believe as we do, God, God blesses and pours out his grace and his strength upon the church. He says to Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Man, have a mind, Timothy, that's free from intoxication. You're not under the influence. Your influence, your lens is the word of God. That's how you develop your worldview. Bring this world into focus with the word of God. It says endure suffering. I, I, I'm kind of stunned as I've gone through First and Second Timothy this time around. Like, like how many times Paul's addressed the issue of suffering and suffering for the sake of the cross, suffering for the sake of Jesus, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work. Of, think about Timothy here for a moment. What is his nature? What was his personality? I mean, we know from these letters to him that he was a timid, timid guy. Uh, you know, I would think regarding Timothy that evangelism did not come easy for Timothy. Anybody else? Does that resonate with your heart? You know, I don't think there's a lot of people actually that just clearly out and out have the gift of evangelism where it's just easy, peasy, lemon squeezy for them. <laughs> Most of us, it's, it's a struggle. Nevertheless, Paul doesn't say, yeah, don't worry about that. Hire an evangelism pastor in Ephesus. <laughs> Pass that duty off. He says, no, rather, Timothy, you do the work, man. You do the work. And the same is true for you and I, whether we feel evangelism is our gift or not our gift. There's no out. You do the work of an evangelist. You do your best. You share Jesus. You love people. You prayerfully trust the Holy Spirit to work. And you and I can't win souls anyways. It takes the spirit of God to lead them to that place. But we can herald Jesus Christ. And so, you know, we, we may not all be evangelists, but I would say this, Paul's saying this, you still need to have the heart of an evangelist. Have that heart. Have that heart for the lost in the workplace and in your home and in the church and in your personal life and in your corporate gatherings. You, you remember that there's people present that might not know Jesus and you be ready to do that work. Have a burden for the lost. He says, fulfill, Timothy, your, min your ministry. It was a great old story of a young minister who came to Charles Spurgeon and he complained to him. He said, you know, my church isn't big enough. I have a pretty good skill set. I should be preaching to larger crowds. And so Spurgeon said to him, well, how big is your church? How many people are you preaching to? And he said, well, we've got about 100 people. And Spurgeon said to him, well then, I think that will be enough to give account for on the day that you stand before God. You, you fulfill the ministry that God's given you. You be faithful to Jesus Christ in the place 
where he's put you. And see, the fulfillment of ministry is not, not measured by warm bodies in a chair. See, that's the mistake we made back in that seeker sensitive. We, we, we started to measure success based on seats. Fulfillment of ministry is measured by faithfulness to the mission. Faithfulness to Christ. And so Timothy, keep your head clear. You know, I would say don't get under the influence of programs, church growth schemes, gimmicks, fads. Young man, preach the word. He says in verse 6, Fire I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. The time of my departure. That's actually really beautiful language in Greek. It means this. I'm packing up the tent, man. I, I, it, or it could mean this. That after years of work, this ox is having the yoke lifted off. Or it actually even means this. That this ship has been in harbor and I get to pull up anchor and get out of the real waters. You know, it, it's kind of a neat picture because I think often we think, well, we're sailing in this life and one day we're going to bring our ship into harbor and we'll be with God. But it's actually the other way around. It's like we're actually stuck in harbor right now. And one day we get to pull up anchor and then, man, it'll be God and his presence and, and the joys of his kingdom eternally. And we'll be done plowing this earth long, earth long enough and we'll get the sail to heaven. So Paul says this, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. You know, Paul talks about the past and the present and the future there. He says, you know, if he talks about uh, the past, he can look back and he can say no regrets. Um, you know, it's not, not that he lived perfectly. We know that about Paul. Paul. Paul did not live perfectly, but he could say, you know, no regrets in the sense that, you know, I fought the, I fought the, Hey guys, where are you going? You guys are cute, Jacob. You heading to the bathroom? Perfect. Okay. I fought. The present, he says this, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. What a great thought. There is laid up for you and I a crown of righteousness. And the future is this. The Lord is going to award to us as we are faithful to him that crown of righteousness. Remember, Jesus is a righteous judge. That means th there's no messing up in his decisions when he decides it's true and it's fair and it's right. And as we're faithful to him, we are rewarded a crown of righteousness. Now I want to just run here for a second on this thought because it's kind of cool. Do you know that the Greek word for crown is this? Stephanos. Uh, we derive that name Stephen from that word. That word. The name Stephen means crowned. And it's cool just to think about how God is bringing Paul's life full circle 
Just like he is going to bring our lives full circle as we serve him. You know, I think of Paul the very first time that he appears on the pages of scripture. He was first introduced as Saul. Acts chapter 7. Where was he? He was standing, uh, looking after the, the cloakroom, the jackets of the guys who were about to stone the first martyr of the church. And what was that man's name? Stephen. Crowned. And, you know, Stephen may have been condemned by men, but as his own name declares, he was a man who was crowned by God. We read the, we read the story about Stephen. It's as he is about to be stoned, God even opens up heaven so that he can see into heaven. He, he, he's got an open door right into the kingdom of God and he sees Jesus Christ. And, you know, he weighed anchor. He, he passed from this life into the next. He folded up the tent and he went because of his faith in Jesus. And, and you have to think that as Paul is writing these words to Timothy and he says, Stephanos, I've got a crown of life coming, that his mind and his thoughts hearken back to the day when he unrighteously acted and participated in Stephen's murder. And here's the beauty of that. You know, Stephen did not die in vain for Jesus Christ. His murder was not pointless. It touched the heart of a young man named Saul. And when Jesus got a hold of Saul's life, man, his participation in that murder motivated him for years and years and years of ministry. See, God was glorified through Stephen's death in the life of Paul. And you know, I think as Paul talked about folding up tent, weighing anchor, and the crown that would be awarded him, I, I think he took comfort in this, that God would be honored in his death as well. He's the man, come full circle here. But nevertheless, Paul's human as he talks here about prison. We'll move through this last section pretty quick here because we're getting up against the clock. So, he says this, do your best to come to me soon. And the, the loneliness of a prison cell and being deserted by people was affecting Paul. You watch how many times he tells Timothy to come to him. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Timothy to Dalmatia. Demas is actually mentioned three times in the Bible. The first time in the book of Philemon. If you take it through chronological order, Paul actually says about Demas, he says this, he's my co-worker. In other words, Demas was a laborer for the kingdom of God. Do you remember what Jesus said about laborers? He said, yes, the Lord of the harvest to raise up labor. The, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Demas was counted a laborer, a co-worker with Paul for the kingdom of God. The next time he's mentioned is in the book of Colossians and it's just one of these, hey, passing things. Demas says, hi. The third time that he's mentioned is here and we read that he's deserted Paul altogether because of what? His love of the world. His love of this present world. 
And see, I would, I, I, I would just observe from this, this that, that Paul's instruction to Timothy matters. If you're going to stay on course long term for Jesus Christ, if you're going to remain faithful to the word of God, then you have to work and live and follow Jesus with an eternal perspective. Be a marathon runner, not a sprinter, like Paul was. Live with the appearing of Christ and his kingdom in mind. Live with the remembrance that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And the love of this world took Demas on a slow descent. Where he drifted from the Lord. The guy who worked arm in arm with the Apostle Paul. Front line ministry worker man. Dude in the trenches with the Apostle Paul. Love the world. And he went to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city in that culture. It was arts and entertainment in Thessalonica. A center for those things. And that's where he went. He loved the world and he got caught up in entertainment. The distractions of frivolous things. And look, man, as Christians, it doesn't mean we don't enjoy life. Man, we love life with Christ. But if it turns our focus from Christ, then that doesn't work. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to my ministry. Of course, Mark was the individual that caused Barnabas and Saul to go their separate, or Barnabas and Paul to go their separate ways many, many years before. And all these years later, Marcus proved himself as a, a faithful man, someone who was helpful to Paul. Verse 12 says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Verse 13, when you come, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. When you come, Timothy, this is what I need. I need my jacket, my, my cloak, and my books. You know, I, think, I just think it's interesting as we read this and we know that this is the last words of Paul right here. You know, he's not, he's not reminiscing and talking about life scenes and the years of ministry and, hey man, remember when we planted that church and, Hey, remember when this happened and all these people got saved there? And wow, remember when we went on that missionary journey? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the people that mattered to him. He, he's talking about the relationships that were important to him. As, as he senses loneliness, here's this great man of God, you know, confined to this world, living for the next. And he, he needs the things that are part of common grace of God to people. You know, a jacket when you're cold. Some people when you're lonely. Some books when you're bored. You know, that's, that's the reality for all of us. When, when, when you're lonely, you need friends. We need clothing. You know, when the mind is, you need something to stimulate it, a, a good book. And to admit those things is, to be human. And those things matter to God. 
they're natural needs that God wants to look after and, and meet for us. And thank God he's, he's placed us in a, a church with, with like-minded people where we can build friendships. He says, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. It's not one of these, uh, hey man, Lord, sick him on Alexander. Paul's like quite forgiving here. He says in verse 16, at my first defense, no one else came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You know, uh, when that crowd gathered around Stephen and they began to stone him, the Bible says that he fell to his knees and he let out in a, a prayer in a loud voice and he said, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. You know, Jesus prayed for those who crucified him. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And, and Paul, at the end of his life, does the same thing for Alexander who harmed him greatly and, and does the same thing for people who had not defended him. He, he says, may it not be charged against them, Lord. He, he, he trusts God to take care of that stuff. He didn't cling to that bitterness and unforgiveness. He let it go. He took it to the cross. And I would say that there's, that is the spirit-filled life Lord, forgive those who didn't stand with me. Forgive those who didn't have the courage when I was in trouble to, to partner with me. Forgive those, Lord, who, who harmed me. You can do that when God is strengthening you. It says in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might, be he might hear it so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory and glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it amazing? What a great hope that we have that God is going to bring us into his heavenly kingdom. You know, I just, sometimes I wonder about myself. <laughs> sometimes I think you wonder about me. God is going to bring us through. God is going to bring us into his kingdom. And I'm going to wrap it up quick here. I'm going to invite Marcus to actually come. He says this, last few verses. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Man, there's a whole lot of stories with all those people. He says in closing, the last words of Paul right here. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace to you. So, you know, he shared with Timothy. Poured out his heart in these two letters. You know, told him about the ministry of the word of God and the power of the gospel and church leadership and picking leaders and all of these different things and to endure suffering and to remain true to preaching sound doctrine in the last days. And one final word wraps it up and really wraps up the ministry of Paul. And it's this grace to you. Grace be with you. Grace, the unmerited favor of God upon you. And may God's grace be to you this morning.